0: Simon Young, how oh, you? Yeah. I'm all right, mate. I was trying to remember the last time we actually had a real life conversation, either in person or over the phone. And I'm gonna say the last. Obviously, we've been speaking over the wonderful means of social media, but I don't think we've had a proper chat, dude, since December 2016.
2: We started a Christmas party at the uh, Big Red.
0: It wouldn't have been at the Christmas party, but it would have been right before Team Rock closed.
2: Ah, oh, right, yeah.
0: Because wow. I, haven't, I haven't spoken to you since that. I haven't spoken to you properly about any of that madness, and I'm sure we'll get into that later on. But obviously, this is something that me and you used to do going back 10 years now. When I was on Kerrang! Radio, when you were at Kerrang! Magazine, every week, yeah. I'd call you up and we'd have like the lowdown of what's going on in the magazine, what you've been up to. And yeah, man, a lot of uh, a lot of good memories have come flooding back in the lead up to this chat, and I'm excited to talk to you, dude.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was like Tuesday afternoons. I'd, I'd dive into a, uh, I'd dive into a an empty office, and and just. Talk at you on the phone. Well, my my favourite story
0: that you told me was when you'd been out to Austin for South by Southwest, and it was the year that Fat Mike had like debuted his Cokey the Clown character, and he'd allegedly or seemingly urinated in a bottle of Patron Tequila and then come out and given shots. That were supposed to be from that bottle to the crowd, and and then he performed in that character, and you know told all those dark stories, and and you were there, weren't you?
2: I wasn't actually there, but we'd um, I'd, I'd somehow convinced Fat Mike to do a a, a fairly long Q and A for the mag uh, right afterwards, and uh, he was playfully being a bit cagey about the contents of the glass, but I, I don't think he would. It was probably very weak uh, Schlur or uh, <laughs> supermarket owned apple juice watered down because it does have the same uh, consistency and colour
0: of your. Own. I, would,
2: I wouldn't. I wouldn't have drank it.
0: No, well, I've seen there was yeah. another video that he did, which they revealed later on. He talked about it in the book as well. They did like a last minute switcheroo, um, mm. but what he did say in the book that he left the bottle that he actually pissed in in the dressing room, and then, uh. and then when he came back, one of the other bands or whoever had nicked it and taken it. So he's like, the crowd didn't drink my piss, but somewhere, somebody <laughs> did.
2: <laughs> uh.
0: The moral of that story is, don't go nicking people's tequila.
2: That's it. Um, yeah, bands are very precious about their riders, so <laughs> a lesson to be learned there.
0: So what's been happening, dude? I guess, first of all, before we get into you and your journey and your story, tell me about how lockdown life has been for you as a husband, as a father, as a freelance writer, as a human. Um, how have you found the last six months, mate?
2: Um, it's, personally, it's been all right. It's just the uh, trips to the supermarkets have been really unsettling Uh, because I kind of live in the house and rarely leave other than school runs anyway. And um, I was kind of, you know, I'd say all my friends, well, I'm working from home now. And I'm like, yeah, good luck.
0: Welcome (laughs) to the club.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, because I was writing uh, the book we're going to speak about soon. So I was kind of every night for about three months working on the book. And I was working towards this kind of March 31st deadline. I thought, as soon as I've got the book, Done. I'm going to go to the pub, have a few pints, and celebrate. And a week before that, Boris Johnson comes on the telly and says, "We we can't go out now forever." And yeah. uh, it's ve- it's been very strange, and it's you know, kind of anxiety and dread comes in waves. But generally, it's it's been okay on a personal level within our small family unit. Um, but just watching the news every day it just seems like a really weird Charlie Brooker kind of story unfolding and it doesn't seem to be slowing down or showing any signs of getting better really so I've I've just resigned myself to never going out again really
0: (laughs) This uh, this is your new normal
2: (laughs) Yeah Yeah, (laughs) pretty much How's it been for you?
0: Oh mate, it's been hard man Yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it Uh, for me, I think, because I'm, you know, very much entrenched in hospitality and live events through the various different roles that I carry out. Be that as a DJ or, you know, touring and hosting live Q&As and everything that I do, not just professionally, but really personally is, is centered around, you know, gathering places. You know, I'm not in a relationship. I'm not a father. So for me, my life is really centered around out and about social activities with friends and, you know, the sort of families that I've made over the years of doing shows all over the country. And to have that all ripped away, as well as the, the money and the income, it's like the double whammy. And it's been really hard adjusting. I mean, thankfully, I've had my book to work on as well. So that's that's kept me nice and busy. And there's obviously still an element of productivity and positivity. But on the whole, it's it's been like one of the most, if not the most challenging years of my life for sure. Okay. And, as, and as you say, it's like, you know, initially I thought it would be a few months and then, you know, things will resume and I can ride this out perhaps by the end of summer, we'll be back and, and rocking once again. But I mean, now I've kind of resigned to the fact that even this time next year, it's not a hundred percent certain that, you know, shows and festivals and, and pubs and everything yeah. else will, will be back to the way they once were. So I guess you just, it's like adapt or die, isn't it? You have to just roll with it. And yeah. yeah. And crack yeah. on, so dude, your yeah. first job in the industry was it working for Kerrang magazine? Was that your salubrious start in the uh, the world of the music magazine? industry in yeah, journalism?
2: yeah um i so i I came to London to study film studies and communication studies at middlesex in ninety four and I picked a london <laughs> i went through clearing' <laughs> cause, uh I didn't apply myself in the two years leading up to that. But I picked a, a London-based uh, seat of education um, purely on the fact I could go to gigs. Because at that time, not many bands that I wanted to see really came to Newcastle. And uh, I, I never got away with fake IDs and stuff because I was quite baby-faced at the time. <laughs> so, it, Dude, it,
0: you it, still I are. Always... You don't age.
2: Uh, well, you should see the portrait in my loft. It's rotten.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dorian. But
2: uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but there's, I I could, like, the last gig I saw in Newcastle before moving down to London was um, Pantera at the City Hall in Newcastle. Wow. And Understand supported them, and I was more into Understand, and I think that really pushed me towards the sort of more post-hardcore end of music that i listen listened to more or less ever since. And uh, the power kept cutting out at the City Hall, and I got my tenor back, which uh, was fantastic So I was on my way to London. And uh, after my degree, well, during my degree, I uh, I became the music editor of uh, the Planet magazine. For, it was the free student newspaper at uh, Middlesex University, and uh, I was the sole music writer. So I was basically, <laughs> I did did everything myself for that part of the mag and um, uh, curb Dog was the first band I ever interviewed. There you go. And, um, I remember sitting on the stairs of the flat I lived in, uh, Honest Grove, and uh, I didn't really know how to record a phone. So I, I kind of gaffer taped uh, my uh, Walkman, which recorded stuff, to the receiver, and I was really trying hard to hear what Cormac Battle was saying on the other end, and it was getting the faintest kind of uh, recording out of it. So it was a, a, a big learning curve there. But it was about a year after um, university that I I moved back to Newcastle for a few months just to try and see what I could get with a fairly useless degree. And um, I went back to London to work as a runner for a post-production company. And um, I was working a lot of night shifts. And uh, there was nothing to do other than get the odd coffee here and there. So I started doing a fanzine. And then I bumped into Phil Alexander at Kerrang lots of gigs and I eventually plucked up the courage to hand him a a copy of it and then not not long afterwards I was offered some work experience and did that and never really left
0: so when you say you noticed Phil Alexander who for those people listening who don't know he's like the editor-in-chief is that his role still now
2: yeah Yeah, um
0: how did you know who he was just from his picture in uh, Kerrang or
2: from his picture in Kerrang and um he used to present uh Raw power, um, right? Which was like the if you didn't have satellite TV, it was basically the only hour of music videos you could get in the early nineties and stuff. So and um, yeah, he, he was he was always he was always very approachable and um, yeah, I just said oh, I've done a fanzine and here you go. Oh, and do you remember in the the Kerrang magazine used to be um, a little. Uh, so on on the masthead page there would be a little thing called stimulants where it's like this magazine was made with the following stimulants and it would list like stuff they'd been to and seen and just little shout outs to things and um there, there was a little picture of my fanzine nice. in one issue what, analysis, what was that like. called uh called hit the guy with glasses
0: <laughs> so have you Named always you've the... always worn glasses then that's always been your look
2: uh since uh I, I don't know what year they call it now but since Top Infants the, the, the year before first year junior right, I, I wore right. glasses and uh, yeah it, it was named after the Voodoo Glow Skull song and what was the content big, of it? it was q and Um my friend Nick who, who sadly passed away this year um, he he did some uh, interviews with like Cherry uh, Pop and Daddies I did stuff with uh, I, I did like live
0: reviews of like A and Rock from the Crypt and Foo Fighters and there was a, So this is 96, 97.
2: This, it would have been a bit later than that, actually, I'm trying to think when it would have been, so sort of 98. Right. Um, there was a, a huge interview with uh, Pete from Group Dog Drill, um, who I adored then and still adore now. And it, it was, that, that took up a lot of the stuff uh, in, the, in the issue and things like that. And there was a picture of uh, Michael Douglas and Falling Down on the cover. It was just a very cut-and-paste job done at the, uh, one of my boss's desks at work because no one was there apart from me and a few other tape ops and stuff at three in the morning.
0: And, and how, uh, how many really issues did you do? Was it just like a singular one-off thing, and then you got in the door at Kerrang! and you're it, off? Yeah, it
2: was, I did one print one. I think I printed about 30 copies and sold about two and gave the rest away. <laughs> and, um yeah, then I had this idea to do it on uh, the internet, which is this new cool thing <laughs> happening. Yeah. And um, But then I I got offered some work experience and a few months later um, Ashley Bird said oh, we need someone to file some uh, photos for a, a few weeks. Um, do you want to... This was at, uh, Cable's last gig at Dingwalls. I bumped into him and uh, he said, yeah, we need someone to do some filing and stuff. Uh, are you up for it? And I was, I was kind of went straight to the office before i gave an answer and uh i just kind of just hung around you know made tea and made myself useful and uh yeah so the first issue uh i wrote for would have been around may or june of 99 i think it had either chino or uh, Serge tanking on the cover and i did a little column about funny websites
0: it's funny, isn't it? Because when we were, obviously you started a little bit before me, but it was still the case when I started out is, you know, you turn up, as you say, you've got like a week work experience is how it starts. And then if you get on well and you work hard, you just kind of linger, don't you? And, yeah. and then there's new jobs to be doing all the time. And then the longer you stay, the more responsibilities you get, the more you learn. And then eventually, if you're good and they like you and you fit in and everything, then, you know, a position comes up and, you're off. And I, I wonder yeah. whether it's still the same now. And I wonder because I've noticed, I don't know whether you've noticed this as well. I've noticed that there was a lot more working class people in the, the music industry when, when we were doing our thing. And it seems like now it's so unaffordable for anybody from a less privileged background to be in London and working for free, that it seems like that door is shut to a lot of people from a certain background I don't know whether you've ever thought about that or noticed that, but I do seem to see, like, the younger people that are starting out in the industry have clearly got a bit more of a, uh, you know, a bank balance rolling them from the family, which is obviously a great position to be oh, in if you're yeah. in it.
2: Yeah, I've often wondered how, like, especially now people who do, like, internships and stuff survive, especially in London, because even with, you know, a proper salary and stuff, it was hard enough. Yeah. But, um yeah, at the time I was doing odd shifts at the local pub and things and just hustling you know, see what I could do to just make money but when I started again in the June I was, um I started doing the letters page and just bits and pieces and, and it was kind of just given like a, a weekly wage and I, I went to literally every gig I could possibly go to Um it didn't matter who it was, I was just so taken with the idea you could go into a, a gig for free and get CDs for free. I and, know, man. You know, I, just, I loved every second of it.
0: Who did you see around that time live, you know, around 99, 2000, because music at that point was so exciting. And probably the last time when guitar music was dominant in the pop charts, wasn't it? You know, whether it was bands like Foo Fighters or Queens of the Stone Age, or you obviously had the new metal stuff, you had Blink-182 and Offspring and that stuff. For me, that seemed like the last hurrah for guitar music and obviously you had so many incredible bands just coming up and starting out as well do any spring to mind like iconic shows around London from the turn I, of the millennium
2: I remember Red Hot Chili Peppers played at Coco and I, I'm sure I'd just started Some, it was like a summer gig and I was like there and I was because I grew up listening to Chili Peppers I was like I can't believe I'm in such a tiny venue for this I know man and and This, this like, California Cation era as well, is it? it? Yeah, it would have been. Um, yeah, because I remember the tickets for the that kind of star logo, and it had the kind of uh, fiery colored clouds on it. So it must have been men. Yeah. yeah, it would. I think it was. Yeah, it was definitely John Fischandi, and uh, it was right until the last minute that I was finding out whether they had a spare ticket to go. And I was just like, "Wow, I got it in here for free!" And after that, like um, around the awards, they would have like. Um, like small club shows at this pub called The Falcon in Camden and um, the, like uh, Rich from Black Halos posted some photos recently where they'd played with uh, Murder City Devils and stuff and Rich I Jones. remember yeah and I can't remember going but I, I I'm adamant I was there because if if it was a crying evening I would have gone and you know especially with like bands like Black Halos and Murder City Devils because that's the kind of rock I was pretty much exclusively listened to it at the time and uh, it just brought back memories of seeing bands like Will Haven and uh, who were amazing uh, you know it was just the back room of a pub
0: yeah, and then yeah, you'd have yeah. people
2: like Derek from Sepultura hanging out because it would be like the days leading up to the Krang Awards so everybody was in town and everyone was just hanging out and it was just like I didn't know what to do with myself it was just such a an amazing start to what became quite a a long career.
0: Well, there's a moment in, in the book that I've been writing where Eugene from Goggle Bordello talks about a similar experience when he lands in New York and he says it's like he went from looking at the books on his shelf to being a character inside the pages and it's kind of mm. like that isn't it you grow up with these bands on your walls and you're looking at the sleeves of the cds and you're immersing yourself in this world and then the next thing you know you're in a a pub and you're looking around and there's all these characters there in real life like right in front of you and you're like oh my god i'm in it it's happening what, yeah. what was your first big press trip like when you went abroad somewhere to do a feature story what was the first really exciting adventure that springs to mind in that regard mm-hmm.
2: I remember quite early on I was sent to cover Iron Maiden in um, France because uh, Bruce had, it was the first sort of tour with Bruce since he rejoined and stuff and I I like Maiden were my first band I got into seriously and um, <laughs> I just like my mind went blank for a split second before the interview because I was just like I was sitting in a van with Bruce Dickinson and Steve Harris and I was just like. Oh God! <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there's people I've had posters on the wall since I was twelve, and now i'm you know I'm getting to talk to them before they do a huge gig and uh, but they were brilliant, and I got to interview them more and more over the years, and they've, they've always been very kind and generous and uh but that was the i can't believe I'm doing this type job, and I can't believe I'm being trusted to get you know the cover story
0: That's an exciting moment. Isn't it? I've I've, yeah. ne- I've never done a cover story, and I can only imagine the the excitement, the trepidation, like everything all in one. The pressure's on, isn't it? And it's yeah. how many words generally is a cover story? Six thousand, five thousand.
2: But uh, it, it well, I think it would have been about three thousand, right? Ish. but then it was like there was like an all star Q and A where uh, people like Terry King and Chino Marino had submitted questions to ask the band so I had to do that as part of the feature but part like for a bit of background flavour Bruce Dickinson was uh, flying this um, it was like I think it was like an eight-seater Cessna which they called the Bruce Goose and he would fly it was either all of the band or the majority of uh, the band plus their manager Rod over the channel and stuff to these gigs but I got to fly with them from uh, France to, I'm not sure if it was Belgium or maybe in Holland. And it was like, it was only a, a short jump, but um, that was that was really surreal. And I'd have like, Nico McBrain was doing this kind of blog, you know, which is quite, you know, er- early on for 2000 and stuff. But it was, uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. The curve. And he just said, oh, do you want to read that and tell me if you, you know, tell me if there's any spelling mistakes and stuff. And it was that was just weird. <laughs> Just I was helping like, him edit, love it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is this is surreal. And, you know, if I said to my friends what had just happened that weekend, no one would believe me. But luckily, there's a, a few photographs floating around. Uh, it, yeah, but just, just talking about it now, it just makes me realize how incredibly lucky I was to get those kind of jobs to begin with.
0: how many years were you there dude you were there a long time right like was it almost 20 years
2: so it was 99 to must have been 2014 so it was a good 14 years then i left to do uh some to uh, produce the rock show dan carter at radio one Yep. and then a year later i joined team rock uh for a couple of years and then um that ended disastrously, and uh, <laughs> Karan graciously took me back under their wing, and um, I've sort of been a freelance server
0: since. And you so, still still do the odd so, bit for them now, yeah?
2: Yeah, um, yeah. I've been doing uh, a lot of online stuff for them. Um, just since COVID, they've kind of uh, postponed production of the magazine and just concentrate on digital uh, until it's kind of blown over.
0: And we'll see when and, that um, is.
2: yeah but um they're they're still doing like uh you know online they're they're kind of doing like cover features and stuff like there's a big read every wednesday and stuff so it's you know it's business as usual It's just in a different format and uh what they've been doing recently recently is really cool
0: what were the kerrang offices like back in the day tell me about some back 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 in the day what shenanigans on a typical afternoon or night perhaps (laughs) or morning even Uh You know, because that was a time when, you know, hedonism was still rife in not just the music industry with the bands, but with, you know, the pluggers, the publicists. Certainly there was a little bit of that at Kerrang Radio, not a lot, because everybody there was kind of like a little bit older and more sensible by the time I joined. Um, But I know the magazine and there's a few journalists that spring to mind. You don't have to necessarily name any, but I I gather that there was quite a, uh, you know, an appetite for alcohol and various other things at that time with a few of the people working there was it kind of like a pretty fucking rock and roll space day to day obviously you're getting the work done as well but what was going on
2: um in the office it was very much heads down you know because of the the pressure of hitting deadlines and stuff but you know when you went out you know there was always beers on the go and stuff like that but um you know this it was so long ago after six o'clock, people would be like smoking cigarettes out of the window, you know, obviously flying in the face of uh, building rules. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was like it was a very fun place to work, but it was very serious at the same time. And if you know, if you know, you you had to get the work done. And uh, but you know, there was I, I can't remember any kind of Hunter S. Thompson kind of uh, shenanigans. But you know, I was very green and naive, so.
0: What about bands coming in? Uh, were there any bands that were out of their minds? Did you see any eccentric behaviour from musicians that were paying the the offices of the? Well,
2: I, I missed I missed the Wild Hearts by. Oh, I don't know. It must have been about eight years or something when they came to uh, voice their
0: uh, grievances. mail over
2: <laughs> uh, a new story and trashed the office. We never had that. Um, I remember. Um, I remember feeling quite weirded out by, uh, <laughs> David Draymond wanted to, he was really annoyed about something I'd written in a feature. Cause he was like, he had been drinking vodka and he was trying to smash a bottle of vodka in, in a backstage, um, in a dressing room. And like, they were supporting Manson and, uh, they, he was trying to smash just, just for fun, uh, smash a, a very heavy, like absolute vodka kind of bottle. And, um, I just mentioned that he was in a, like an alcohol stupor yep. and he's trying and failing to smash this bottle and he could not. And he's wearing the biggest boots you'd ever seen. So I'd poked fun at that. And he, it was backstage at possibly Milton Keynes at an Ozfest. And he had a word beforehand. And then I was asked to go and get some more quotes from him for something else. And I was like, I can't do it. He's, he's put the shit right up me. Cause he's, you know, <laughs> It's quite, you know, I, I I look twelve, and when when there's adults around, I feel quite young. And I was like, I can't do that. So Ian Wood graciously stepped in, and I got the uh, the for me. But you know, because you hear a lot about journalists, you know, having real run-ins with people they've written about, but it's never really happened with me because I just I, I was I was never that kind of writer. Yeah, to, to wind people up. Yeah, you know, he, Ian Winwood's your guy, isn't he? The boxing match by <laughs> Chad Kroger.
0: <laughs>
2: None of that ever happened to me. I was more like the one who would just be, just write daft stuff and do the more fun kind of features and, in the magazine and leave the serious stuff to Paul Brannigan and Tom Bryant and Ian Winwood, that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> what about the Karanga Awards? That must have seen well. some shenanigans <laughs> over the years. I only got to go really to to one or two. I remember one year I got to present Jared Leto in 30 Seconds to Mars with the Best Single Award. But even then, this was 2011, I think, even then it was starting to get a bit tamer, I could sort of sense. But, you know, I imagine in those early years of the noughties, there was probably still a bit of rock and roll hedonism going on, right?
2: Oh, there was it, it was messy. I remember that. The first one was, I, I'm trying to remember how far into it went. Um, was it Britt Eklund through her ankle? I think she, I, I think it was Britt Eklund. She slipped on some fruit that a band had thrown towards the stage and she'd fell over and, and done a leg in. And like Slipknot with her And they, I'm sure they set fire to a table. They were doing all the most Slipknot things you could imagine <laughs> during the ceremony. And um, <laughs> then uh, I interviewed Clown backstage because they'd won something. I think this was around Iowa, perhaps. But it was when Clown had that kind of um, bald clown mask on, and uh, I was leaning really close to because he's like to hear Clown speak with a mask on. It's pretty. It's quite intimidating, I think. Yeah, and, he's, uh, a, he's I was, a
0: foreboding I, dude. And I
2: and I was leaning close to him and getting the cut and. So, like someone went past went, Oh, you were you weren't scared of him. You were really close to him when he was like shouting. Basically, I was like, I was trying to catch what he was saying because it was quite muffled. <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, but the early, the earlier awards, uh, like from what I remember, a few of the earlier ones. Um, I cannot remember the name of the hotel, but it would be the ones where a lot of bands would stay. And um, K West. No, no, it was it was Columbia.
0: Much, it was much,
2: yes. Yeah. that's it. And it just piling in and everyone just taking the mick out of the not not out of the bar staff but just people clearly weren't staying in the hotel and were just there to carry on drinking.
0: And, <laughs> and you've got you know, one know, night just, porter on their own like, fuck it now. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And just just looking crestfallen when you'd see about 30, <laughs> 30 hairy metalers just pile in who clearly been drinking since the afternoon and still thirsty for some reason. So, but yeah, they were brilliant.
0: Good days, man. This is pre-smartphones as well. So you didn't have people, I guess, punishing all the bands for photos. They weren't concerned about their antics being filmed. So I think people were just, they were a lot more free, weren't they? And they didn't use a bit more reckless and careless. And I miss those days, man. I miss those days of just pure raw hedonism. But I guess, you know, the world is progressing, isn't it? And civilizing. And we have to just accept that and and go along with it. I want to ask you a couple more Kerrang bits before we move forward, sure. mate. Um, do, yeah. do any major mishaps or nightmare scenarios spring to mind where shit just went wrong? You know, where the feature was the hardest, most stressful experience to get done. Perhaps you lost the recording or just, you know, whatever series of events went down. Are there any major journalist nightmares that you could share to reassure everybody um, out there that it happens to the best of us?
2: There was, yeah, it was, there was a really, uh, like, so I went out to Spain with Scarlet Page to do Deftones for a cover feature. And there was this up-and-coming band called Linkin Park uh, on the bill. And um, they got, like, a two-pager out of it. And then Priest, I think it was, like, after they, um, because that tour wound its way around to, like, I'm sure it was, like, the London Arena in the Docklands. Area and uh, they were cover stars, obviously. Um, so I went back. This was around nine eleven. Main Paul Harry's covered Linkin Park on that tour, and they went from like London to Manchester. And it just the atmosphere is really weird, obviously, because you know it's such a a world changing event, and no one really knew what to do, or you know it was just a very a lot of uncertainty and stuff and um, I don't know it just knocked me off my stride and I just could like I I must have written that cover feature a few times and it was probably awful Mm. each time there's just certain times when you just can't get your your act together and I just remember thinking I don't know if I'm ever going to get any more work after this because it was such a big job and I just messed it up and I don't know why I just lost my my mojo um, but after that, I kind of write myself. But I, I did wonder if that was the last piece of work I'd ever do for Crank because I just could not get the tone right for some reason.
0: Yeah, there's there's, there's stress that is involved with, with writing, I think. Like, you know, if it's a yeah. simple review or a list or a countdown or feature something like that, then, you know, you can kind of knock that out fairly, fairly easily. But sometimes when you're trying to, if you're a real journalist and you're really trying to capture the heart of the piece, As you say, sometimes life can be distracting. You're perhaps just not in your creative zone. And then added to that, the fact that this is like a major, well, it's the cover story. It's the most important thing in the whole magazine in your life. And a lot of travel is often involved, which often obviously involves little sleep. And so you couple all of that lack of sleep and stress and it's high pressure shit, isn't it? I don't think people sometimes really acknowledge that and i think people can sometimes take for granted that because the pay as well you know it's not like we're rolling in luxury is it in this line of work yeah, so or,
2: or, <laughs> or uh or freebies at the moment if if any uh would like to send any records by the way
0: mate i can't remember i can't remember the last yeah. time i got a record <laughs> literally in but, fact i tell you the last gift that i got was your book oh there you go i've just you're welcome i'm at chat while <laughs> I would say chapter. They're not really chapters, are they? But you go through. Well, let's just jump in on the book now. So your new book is okay. going to be out. By the time this chat comes out, the book will be here. I think if not now, then in like a week or so. What's the official release date for the book, my friend?
2: Uh, 22nd of September. It's called So Much for the Third Year Plan um, and it's Therapy's official biography uh, with full support and input from uh, the band and several key players around the the band sort of a circle
0: and And, um and there's basically 30 chapters isn't there you go through year by year and and just really detail in in great detail the the recording processes the tour stories creatively where the band was at and you know it's it's not just the 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 main three guys that are obviously now in the band you've got past members in there as well you've got producers you've got friends of the bands i know i've known you 10 years now simon and i guess for you Therapy are like what No Effects are to me. They've always been my favorite band. As long as I've known you, you've always been going on about how much you love Therapy. So this yeah. must have been the dream project for you. Did you approach them? Did they approach you? How did the the concept come about as well to do like the full retrospective because in the book it seems to imply that initially the idea was going to be to do like something around the Trouble Gum era, right? But then to mark the yeah. anniversary it's taken on you know, the full retrospective approach. So did you approach the band? Did they approach you? How did it come about?
2: Well, the initial idea would have taken a lot less time and effort. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I've been interviewing um, Andy and Michael, at, at least, uh, for various uh, Kerrang! um features and news things and podcasts uh, since I started, really, because um, I think, they they had released uh so much for the ten year plan which is like a compilation in it must have been two thousand yeah yeah it would have been two thousand so I've kind of done done lots of stuff with them over the years and I was getting to that point in every freelance music journalist life other thing and I should be writing a book now I wonder what I could do yeah. and um, I just bought there's the book series called thirty three and a third where it's, it's like in-depth looks at like specific albums and bands back catalogs, and uh, it was like the Fugazi one on, in on the Kill Taker. And I looked through their list of previous releases, and there was no mention of Therapy. And um, I sent a text to Andy just saying, "If I was to pitch for a book, um, and maybe do like Trouble Gum, uh, would you be up for doing interviews and stuff? You know, to uh, to give the the story more depth." And, and gravitas and uh they were all for it and um a little while later he just said uh do you want to meet up and talk about doing like a full a full biography to come out for like around late 2020 and um i just met up with them and just went through everything what we could do and uh they were on board and uh i, I just somehow managed to get it. uh uh, Tom at uh, Jawbone Press to uh, agree to publish the book, and then then I was off. So you yeah, ha- you they, they, hustled
0: the publishing deal as well.
2: I had to. <laughs> it was it was out of necessity because uh, I, I thought about maybe doing like a, a crowdfunded thing. Um there's there's some places that uh, do uh, like you you know, it's like crowdfunding, but it's in conjunction with a, a publisher. And then you know, once you reach your goal and stuff, then it's game on, but um, I, I just thought I'd, I'd liked a lot of the books that Joe Bourne had put out uh, they'd done stuff like with King's X which is a really good uh, kind of oral history of their career and I used that as an example when I went to see Andy and Neil um, in London. Uh, Michael was in, in Belfast at the time but they relayed all the, the chat back to him and um, yeah, they, they said it sounds interesting, can you do us a, um, like a sample chapter And I I wrote about Infernal Love because I thought that's got a bit of everything that you'd probably want to read in a a rock biography. And um, they said, great. Uh, (laughs) But they said, if if you want it out in September next year, you're going to have to get in for March. So I had to just really buckle down and and just write as, not quickly, but, you know, as methodically and uh, as much focus I could (laughs) without any pandemics looming on the background.
0: Well, I take my hat off to you, mate, because having just written one myself as well, you know, you obviously have a wife and a child as well, and I can't imagine how you balanced all of that time. Because when I was writing mine, I wrote mine in a really fast space of time because I was really up against the deadline. But I basically just woke up at nine a.m. and you know wrote till like ten p.m. and then went to bed and repeated that. And I didn't have anything at all. So on get rid of them um and so the fact that you've done this as a family man is is a, an incredible testament to your your work drive but then also your you know ability to manage time <laughs> and it, was multitask
2: time I, but i had a very uh, understanding and patient wife uh as well so she she was brilliant during the um you know the whole process cuz it it literally was I did all my interviews um, late October until early December and there must have been about 50 plus hours of stuff. And um, then there was, you know, the transcription then I had to, like, work out how it was going to flow. Like, you know, it was going to obviously flow chronologically, but there had to be a certain kind of way of doing each chapter so it wasn't the same thing over and over again. How,
0: was just, how did you interview the guys? Did you interview them chronologically? Did you, did you start at the beginning and work your way through by year with the individuals? Is that how you approach the interviews? Or
2: I, I did it a bit. There's a lot of jumping backwards and forwards. I just thought, I've got a few hours today. I know a fair bit about this era anyway, so let's just get that done, then I can work on it. So I, I like I didn't start with like them forming in, Northern Ireland and finishing, you right. know, at Abbey Road Studios, it was like, I think I went in, They were, because the publisher was like, uh, could we have a sample chapter? I thought, right, Infernal Love, I know lots about that album without even researching it because I'd read so much when it was released and, and, you know, that's when I first met the band. So it, there was just a lot of um, dipping into uh, areas which I knew about then just kind of filling in the blanks towards the end so there's a lot of um Skype and FaceTime chats with Andy and Michael and then towards the end of the story well you know it was like from uh sort of after the year 2000s and stuff when Neil joined around 2002 then I would include him in the way I was uh, interviewing and stuff. And I would just plug the gaps, then chase up certain band members or crew members or, uh, record label people and, and just kind of give the, you know, just add a bit of variety to the, uh, the story. And it was good. There's a few, like a few band like musicians and stuff said they were up for doing it. Um, but circumstances just meant I couldn't get it done time or they couldn't do it. And, um, but, I, I, you know, I finished just in time. So I, I think if I'd added two anymore, I would have missed my deadline and uh, let myself down as well as everyone
0: else. <laughs> we couldn't have had that. And with when it comes to working with a band on a project like this, you've obviously hit the jackpot with a group like Therapy, who were so nice oh, yeah. and friendly and forthcoming. And obviously, with all the other outside peripheral characters, assuming that you knew most of these people just from all your years in the music industry as well. So it's fairly easy putting all the dots together and getting access to everybody that was, you know, around at that time, not in the band, but around.
2: Yeah. As as far as first books go, like the fact that, you know, I know a lot of people in their circle and, and people connected to them and it was, it was, it was pretty straightforward. And I was really lucky that um, the band had been very good at, archiving all their gigs and releases and you know there was any detail i needed i would give michael a shout because he's, he's kind of archived so much stuff that um it just made my job much easier and i was given like documents that had lists of gigs from like day one and it was it just made everything a plain sailing really
0: assumedly they're stoked with it as well That would be the worst feeling in the world, right, is you go, here's (laughs) the book, guys, and they go, oh.
2: (laughs) Uh, They've been really supportive. Um, I'd I'd send, like, uh, rough drafts of chapters and stuff just to double-check that, you know, the the way I told their story was correct and stuff, and they'd, you know, come back with great stuff, or um, could you add a little bit about this? And, you know, it it was a lot of collaboration going on, but I was just really lucky to have their support right the way through it. I don't think I could have done the book, um, just typing away for three months and sending it off because I don't think I'd be able to bear the the tension of waiting for it to come back with a, yeah, that's great or you know. Can you, can you
0: redo it please <laughs> oh mate I can't imagine yeah it would be crushing wouldn't it just like every yeah. every minute that they're not replying you're just like why haven't they replied yet why haven't they replied yet they must hate it they must hate it uh, I want to ask you a few questions as a lifelong therapy fan um, yes your favourite periods of the band record wise which ones for you stand out as their pinnacle achievements and releases
2: Um, purely because it was my because I, I like I got into them not quite late, but it was like I came in on their second major lab, um label release. I because right, I remember doing work experience at We Are FM, uh when I was in senior school and was it senior school? No, it was maybe first year of uh college and I remember seeing a pleasure death poster in um the uh kind of you know, the room where all the DJs have their desks and do all their admin and stuff. And I was like, that's interesting. But I never got to hear it because the internet really wasn't a thing. And, you know, you, when, when you're 17 or whatever, you can't just go out and buy records on a whim. It's, each purchase has really got to count. But I'd, I'd stored it in my head. So uh, I got into them in the year before Trouble Gum came out because I bought the Short Shock, Shock EP, which had Scream major on. And then so Trouble Gum obviously is – you Know a faultless album, it's a classic, and uh, I loved Infernal Love after that.
0: You and, did, you know, loved it at the time because obviously, there's you know yeah. the famous stories around that album that a lot of people at the time seemingly were like, What the hell's this? This is a bit of a left field turn, and then obviously, over the years, it's been reappraised a bit more and uh, you know, yeah, ce- cele- love- celebrated for the interesting album that it is.
2: I loved that album when it came out, I remember playing it to death, it was during um. <clears throat> so I, I queued up to get it and get it signed on the day of release at the Virgin Mega Store on Oxford Street, which would have been June 95.
0: Uh, I love it. What a full circle moment then to go back to that yeah, kid well, then I, I, eh? and show, know, show, him show him the book.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, on, um, I've got a photograph with me and uh, Michael at the time and I... <laughs> every now and then i'll just send them in and just say it was like uh when alan parry tells that stalker called jed who gets his face tattooed on his stomach and i said that's the next thing i'm going to do is get your face tattooed on me um but yeah that because cause i know a lot of people like not really sure of the the new musical direction but i was just i was so into it you know it started off with stories and there's just all these different kind of tones, and I love David Holmes's kind of uh, sort of ambient interludes and stuff. It was just like a, re- a really great package of just all sorts. And I was, because I was at uni, I was kind of listening to a lot of other things other than metal and hardcore and things. So it's like it all clicked for me uh, on a personal level. But was, they've just consistently put albums I've really enjoyed, and, and they're always slightly different. You know, there's never any re treading of like past uh past glories there's al- there's always a new element to add to it and which which even up to cleave which is their latest studio album and um it just all makes sense and I love it
0: There's one thing that I've always noticed about therapy as well and Andy in particular and that really comes across in this book is he's such a student of all music and he's got all these amazing reference points when he talks about his own music and it's almost like he has this ability to step away from his own material and creations and go well yeah this is our way of being like the Jesus Lizard or Rocket from the Crypt or Big Black mm. or whoever and he's always had this great encyclopedic knowledge of all music and they clearly when they're making albums actively and consciously go let's make this a riff like this let's have a drum beat like that here and i think that's why they're always so like you know there's a lot of variety in the mix. Is cause yeah, they're, they're like, always pulling from so many different influences and feeding it through their filter, aren't they?
2: Yeah, and there's jazz stuff and like Andy's. I think Andy's read every book published, judging by you know the amount of references he's dropped in. Yes, during interviews and stuff and film. It just just they all soak up as many different types of art as yeah. they can, and it it kind of feeds into what they do. Students of art, aren't they? Students. So I think some bands, you know, you you read some older bands and they're like, oh, I don't listen to new music. And you just think, well, that's apparent from the last
0: three (laughs) albums. You know, Maybe you should. Yeah, and he's always down with what's new and what's out and what's happening, and I love that about him. There's always that enthusiasm for not just music, but new music as well. He's always on the cusp of whatever's about and coming, isn't he? Yeah.
2: He was like telling me about Rainbow Grave um, with Johnny Doom and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before I even read about them. And, you know, I've kind of learned uh, this kind of new strands of music that I hadn't really considered before. And I just found myself listening to stuff that he'd mentioned while I was working on the book.
0: He's wearing a Rainbow Grave T-shirt in the book, in the final photo with the three of them outside Abbey Road. I saw that. that I was like, whee, there he is, Johnny Doom.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, he's just, He's always been into, even through the years. You know, he's, he, they always met like around Infernal Love and stuff. I remember Michael. It was either on Headbangers Ball or Real Power. If, if that was out then, it's my my years in middle of But they were saying you should all listen to the Prodigy because if you like rock, you'll love the Prodigy because the energy's the same. It's just played it in a different way, and this was just before. um I think either Music for the Jilted Generation had come out or maybe Fat the Land was the next album, but it hadn't been released yet. But, you know, when you're into a band, you know, back in the past and you don't have the the luxury of the internet to feed your curiosity, you kind of pick up on what bands mention or list in their thanks and stuff. And, you know, so the Prodigy and stuff was, they were championing them like 25 years ago.
0: Yeah, they've always had great bills, haven't they, as well, with who they select to support them. And they've always been different package bills as well that appeal Mm -hmm. to different ends of the... The therapy fan spectrum. What I love as well about therapy is they're no stranger. And I've had Andy on my podcast, and he shared some amazing mm. stories on that of his, you know, his antics. And there's some choice anecdotes in here as well. Like I love the one where he's talking about partying with Timothy Leary out in Hollywood. I love, yeah. I love the story from the Henry Rollins tour where he has a night out with Henry and Paige Hamilton uh, from Helmet. Yeah, and you know, they're never afraid. Andy's always been very honest and upfront about his extracurricular activities, hasn't he? So it must've been nice yeah. to have worked with him in that regard as well and have him not be like, Oh no, leave that out. We can't talk about that. It's all kind of there and in the mix, isn't it?
2: Yeah. He, he, like there wasn't one moment where he said, I oh, like, can you, can you do some editing? It was just like, if he said it, it's, he was like, if if I say it, it's going in the book, basically. And um, yeah, this. There's there's so many great stories, and you know if he you know he could he could fill his own book with just like the, those two anecdotes are just a tiny fraction of the the stuff that we discussed.
0: <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, I bet there but, wasn't anywhere near enough space for all of them.
2: Yeah, but just the invite to, to somehow coax Henry Rollins out to a to sort of a, a bar in New York, and then for him to be confronted with like. Uh, a vomiting person who'd uh, a friend of the band sort of thing and, and just have to be dragged out and put in a cab it mustn't have been a very good look but, Henry you know.
0: Rollins of all people as well
2: yeah <laughs> but yeah it, it was just it was an honour and a a thrill to like document a band of adored for 26 years now and it was supposed to come out just as the tour was going to start and a global pandemic really uh, give an ironic sense to the title because that the, the uh, plan <laughs> was absolutely scuppered. But you know, fingers. I crossed. didn't even
0: think about it like that. But yeah, you're right. Did you have a launch? Yeah, was, did you have a launch event planned as well? Did you have a special occasion doing, uh, in the so diary uh, for the for the release?
2: I think. I think it was just a case of going out to one of the UK dates and just having a few beers and just wetting the baby's head that way. But I think because no one can really go anywhere safely, um, there's talk of doing some sort of uh, Zoom type chat where fans can um, log in and ask them questions and stuff and I'll, I'll maybe host it. And uh, we'll talk about the book and things sort of around the the release date. So it'll be be marked in some way, but it'll um, have less of a a hangover the following day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I saw saw Winwood hosted a Q&A the other night with Bad Religion to celebrate the release of their book. And he did a great job and it worked really well. And um, because I'm obviously trying to think of stuff that I can do for my book as well because I was going I was going to be planning a fucking launch party at the the Viper Room in LA I was all set for a proper rock and roll book launch and once again you know covid strikes so I thought oh I'll tune in and check this out and see how they work and yeah Ian did a great job and it worked really well and it would be a bit easier for you because Bad Religion, there was about eight guys on the screen, you know, whereas it would just be right. you, you and the three from therapy. So it'd be nice and manageable. Yeah. And obviously, yeah, it'd be great to get the fans involved as well and get some questions from them. Um, Dude, congratulations yeah. on the book, mate. I really enjoyed it. And I'm really happy for you as, you know, a lifelong writer and fan of this band that you finally married the two in the ultimate form. And uh, I'm sure this is going to be the first of, of many more books from you. Now you've got the taste.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm looking at other potential books. Uh, So I'll I'll let you know when I do have a a firm plan. But thank you for having me on the podcast. It's uh, it's nice to uh, relive those Tuesday afternoons (laughs) at uh, Endeavour House in London.
0: Well, the final talking point I would like to touch upon before letting you go is the Circa Now podcast. What's the deal? I've, I've tried to listen to an episode, but the, it's not actually live yet, is it? It's coming soon, is yeah, what it says. So tell us yeah, about this. This is an him idea him. for your new podcast. When's it coming? What's it going to be about? What's the crack, Simon?
2: <laughs> well, um, I'm gonna, uh, it's going to launch in September, and I'll, I'll, I think it will probably be with uh, therapy to kick it off. Makes sense. A, a Makes good, sense, yeah. Yeah, to celebrate the, the book and stuff. But um, because I I used to do podcasts um for Kerrang.
0: You were the original podcaster, Simon. You were the original guy. You were doing video yeah. podcasts before the Apple Podcast audio thing was a was a thing.
2: I was second to the Ricky Gervais podcast for you months were because early no doors. one else was doing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's just going to be um, I'm, I'm just just chat over over the phone um, just to just to, you know, get a few stories and just basically rip off the successful format that uh, Life in the Stocks has shown. It's
0: got to be uh, done, mate. It's it's a very simple one, isn't it? I mean, others have more of a thematical lean. With mine, I was like, it's just going to be an in-depth chat. And have you bought yourself a Rodecaster Pro? Have you got one?
2: No, I've got a microphone, uh, a USB mic. uh, It's Rode, and uh, I've, I've just been re-employing my uh, radio skills to uh, just get it all up and running um but the the quality and stuff's fine so for now nice. you know wh- while we can't go out and play it'll it'll do the job
0: well i've l- i've loved using this and i found i did a zoom chat with tommy lee the other night and it was it was a really like lovely chat he was a really lovely friendly you know just warm generous guest he was great to talk to but i found with the zoom thing i don't know whether it was his internet connection or mine but it was quite stop-starty and it was a bit a bit jolty and it's good seeing them there but I find because podcasts for me is just all about the stories and the conversation yeah I've found that doing them over the phone um, and actually the audio quality of the phone I prefer to zoom as well zoom has this weird kind of echoey tinny thing going on but I just find the phone ones work so well because you just dial people up you jump straight in on the chat and you know you're not distracted by looking at a pixelated slowed down version of the other person on the screen so you can just kind of get lost in yeah. the conversation and, and get down to business um dude it's been really nice catching up it's been really nice catching up Thank i can't you. believe four years have flown by so quickly um what else are you <laughs> doing what else is going on are you just freelance writing and trying to keep busy and trying yeah, to survive the um, storm
2: yeah just, just getting by really but um you know the working from home thing i've been doing uh more or less since my daughter was born yep. 5 years ago so it's, that bit was never an issue you know because i think some people have struggled with not leaving where they work basically and um it's it's been fine you know it's it's scary out there but in this house everything's <laughs>
0: the, the way it <laughs> used to be really the safe haven
2: more shopping <laughs> shopping expeditions I guess um, as
0: well you'd kind of stopped going to gigs hadn't you really because you're now down in Hastings so it wasn't like you were going to three or four shows a week like the old days yeah. either you'd stepped yeah, back the, from that
2: the last gig I went to was therapy when they played the forum in early October
0: of course and, it was um, it had to be
2: <laughs> but like from the crypt and know, box like after the book it was a, a dream run of London shows you know every month there'd be something to go into the city for, but um and one by one, they just were postponed until next year, so it'll be fine, but yeah, it's uh it was just that you know the la <laughs> it's just weird the last gig I went to was therapy, then I wrote about therapy I, I <laughs> and then Cambridge you're gonna launch a, a podcast now.
0: with therapy as your first guess, <laughs> yeah, every week's just therapy. <laughs> Well, you could do a lot worse. You know, not only are they an amazing band with an extensive, varied, and brilliant back catalogue, but as we've discussed, just lovely, lovely people as well. And I imagine a dream to work with. Um, oh yeah. And yeah, man, I'll I'll link up a link to the book in the episodes. Um, thanks again for my promo copy. It was nice to receive a gift like the old days. <laughs> Um, now CDs and records don't get sent. Books is the new jam. I've actually got the Bad Religion book that I've been sent. There's been a few others. So I'm now just collecting books instead of records. It's the new medium.
2: Books are the new music
0: <laughs> yeah reading's the new rock yeah. and roll that's what it is reading has got me <laughs> through lockdown mate i've been reading so much more than ever before in my life um yeah. you know to feed the the inspiration for for writing myself yeah. but also just for the escape um from the reality of the present situation and i found that yeah, books definitely. have been they've been the saving grace i loved yours uh, and i look forward to thank checking you. out your your circa now podcast um thank you so that, uh, that we when, out. Your- so when's your book coming out? So mine, I'll tell you about mine in more detail off the phone. But just to give you a brief overview, I had a bunch of issues with the cover. Uh, so I had to get a new cover done. And then the the other side of it was the, the publishing house have just been stacked with COVID and trying to like readapt to everything that's been going on. Right. So they've taken a little bit longer with the proofreading as well. So originally my book was going to be out September 7th. That's definitely not the case now. Uh, the new date is November the 10th. Um, so there's a couple more months, okay. but it's all done. The new cover's done. It looks amazing. It's way better than the last one, which I'm really happy about. And uh, I'm kind of hoping in my heart, I'm you know, it probably won't happen, but I'm hoping perhaps if it is a little bit of a later release, maybe there's still the chance of going out to LA and, and doing something to, to mark the release of it, because yeah. um, I, I need to sign all the pre order copies anyway. So they were like, "Well, we can just post you the first pages of all the books." And I was like, "Well, oh, I want to come out there." So um, we will see, yeah. mate. We'll see what happens. Obviously, America's a complete shit show for for death rates and everything at the moment. It's been really bad over there. So I don't hold my breath. Yeah,
2: isn't, but um, yeah, isn't no, The election around November the tenth.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what a time to be there. <laughs> <laughs> Could go it's one or well two of course, ways.
2: Nice one, dude.
0: Yeah, man. It's been a really enjoyable process. And it's been like baby steps for me because most of the book is just based on conversations from my podcast. So most of like the legwork and the hard work was really already done. It was just a case of pulling all my favorite stories out from the episodes that I chose to include ordering them in a way which told like a new story so it wasn't just straight transcribes of the, the episodes and then I've sort of set them up into thematical chapters so it's all the different guests talking about the same subjects and interweaving between each other with like little intros and stuff from me at the start of each chapter so it's nice it gives Brilliant. the whole conversations like a new a new lease of life and a new context and yeah. I'm hoping that people who listen to the show will buy the book, but also that people who've never heard the show will come across the book from all the guests that are in it and then hopefully discover the podcast and the Empire will continue to grow one tiny little pebble at a time.
2: (laughs) That's how all empires start. But um, yeah, best of luck with
0: it. Cheers, bud. You're a good man, Simon. And This is really nice catching up. And uh, I hope to see you. you. I'll
2: have you on mine when I get mine up and running to talk about your book next time.
0: Love it. Yeah, man. That would be cool. That would be cool. I'd be in. Yeah, lots to talk about. Dude, I'm going to hit the roads and say goodbye. Um, Good luck. Godspeed. And I'll see you in, in the real world, I hope, someday very soon. Me too. Thanks, man. Nice one, Simon. Cheers, bud.